The year was 1915, and a crime reporter from Chicago stepped into an El Paso beer joint to quench his thirst. The parched newspaperman in the area covering Pancho Villa's various exploits happened to notice an old revolver hanging behind the bar. Being the curious sort, he inquired as to its provenance, only to have the bartender revealed that it was the pistol that was used to kill Billy the Kid. Billy the who? asked the journalist, drawing a blank. The Kid. Used to be a famous outlaw around hereabouts. The reporter finished his beer and then went upon his business, logging the name Billy the Kid somewhere in the recesses of his brain. Skip ahead a few years and the Chicago newspaperman found himself once again in the Southwest, visiting family. He still hadn't forgotten about this Billy the Kid character, so he decided to make a drive and ask around. He ends up interviewing several people who knew the kid, including Billy's old flame, Paulita Maxwell. And he wrote a book, a bestseller, titled The Saga of Billy the Kid. Not the most historically accurate work, The Saga of Billy the Kid was nonetheless a hit and picked up by the Book of the Month Club. Four years later, the first of many movies was released, Billy the Kid, starring Johnny Mac Brown, and just like that, the young bandit from New Mexico became a household name. As we all know, many an author and movie director have since taken their turn at the kid over the years. And all because Walter Noble Burns stopped at the Coney Island Saloon one day to have a cold beer. Now that's only part of the story. Equally as interesting as how the pistol ended up in the bar in the first place. It seems that Pat Garrett had a bit of a drinking problem, which as you know can be expensive. As such, he borrowed money from the proprietor of the Coney Island, one Tom Powers, who hung on to that sacred revolver as collateral. Unfortunately, Garrett would be assassinated in 1908 and thus never square up with old Tom. So I reckon had it not been for the perfect storm of Pat Garrett's bad decisions, Pancho Villa's invasion of the United States, and a curious crime reporter, there's a good chance many of us would have absolutely no idea who Billy the Kid was. He'd have been relegated to the footnotes of history as opposed to one of the most famous figures to emerge from the Old West. Of course, Walter Noble Burns would soon turn his attention to another basically unknown Old West relic, feller named Wyatt Earp, with nearly equal results. They don't call him the myth maker for nothing. Over two decades after Pat Garrett's death, a cancer-riddled Tom Powers would commit suicide, not with the famous pistol, and Garrett's widow, Apollinaria, successfully sued to get her late husband's gun back. And then two weeks later, Apollinaria died, which makes me start to think that the damn pistol might be haunted. The gun would stay in the family until the 1980s before being sold to a secession of collectors. It was purchased again fairly recently in August of 2021 for a whopping $6 million. Wonder if it still shoots. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Hey, real quick, this is part five and the final installment in the series on Billy the Kid. Link to the previous four episodes in the show notes. Billy Bonnie was really starting to feel the heat come the fall of 1880. Not only was the Cattlemen's Association coming at him, but so was his old acquaintance from Fort Sumner, Pat Garrett. And on top of all that, even the feds were on his case. The Treasury Department had been getting complaints about fake bills being passed around Lincoln County, and they sent the Secret Service in to investigate. That's one thing the government does not like, just FYI. Only they can print money, and if you start trying to cut in on some of the action, brother, they will rain down an ungodly firestorm on you quicker than you can say Emilio Estevez. 
The guy sent in by the Treasury Department, investigator Azaria Wild, was able to quickly link Billy to the counterfeit money. But the kid wasn't the only one. Hell, everybody was in on it. Even J.J. Dolan got busted with some funny money. And many, to this day, suspect him of being the mastermind behind the whole damn ring, at least in his part of New Mexico. As far as Billy goes, truth be told, we don't even know that he did much of anything other than pass off a few fake bills. However, due to the kid's growing fame, his close association with other counterfeiters, and his other, shall we say, extracurricular activities, he would become a chief target of Investigator Wilde, who suspected Bonnie of heading up a huge criminal organization, especially after the kid allegedly held up a mail coach, which was also a federal crime. By the way, for all you conspiratorial sorts that are just chomping at the bit for yet another Jesse James and Billy the Kid connection, if you search long enough on the bowels of the internet, you'll find rumors that James was also involved in this counterfeit operation. Is this true? I don't know. And to be honest with you, I don't have the energy to try to get to the bottom of it. The main thing to know is that Billy was at least partially involved in passing along the counterfeit money. And while he was not the ringleader, he was still being hunted down by the federal authorities as if he was. Investigator Wilde began recruiting a little posse of his own, ramrodded by Robert Ollinger and John Hurley, both Dolan men who had been knee-deep in the Lincoln County War. Azaria had them both deputized as federal marshals with the chief mission of tracking down the counterfeiters. So not only do you have the Secret Service agent Wilde and his two deputies hunting Billy, but you also got the Stockman's Association in Texas sending in their killers, and of course, to round out everything, you have the newly elected Sheriff Pat Garrett. All of these groups were working together, by the way, with Wilde all over the place, and his deputies, along with some of the Texas Panhandle investigators, riding with Garrett at various times. Through it all, Billy Bonney just kept on doing his thing. Unlike other notable bandits, he wasn't robbing trains or holding up banks or anything like that. Other than sticking up that one mail coach, Billy mostly just stole livestock, a crime that many a respectful man was guilty of back in 1880. And if it seems like the kid was unconcerned about the growing target on his back, I think that's because he was still holding out hope for that pardon. He hadn't forgotten about the governor's promise, and to be fair, neither had Wallace, at least not when his mind wasn't focused on writing Ben-Hur. While a full pardon was absolutely off the table at this point, the governor did have an attorney named Ira Leonard working on Billy's case with instructions to do something for Billy, but none of Wallace's ideas had yet to meet Leonard's standards, possibly because Leonard was also working with the federal investigator Wilde. The two concocted a plan to have Billy come in and provide them with information on the counterfeiting ring. In return, they'd help the kid out by dropping the federal charges and give him one more chance to reform. As far as I understand the deal, this would do nothing for Billy's indictment and Sheriff Brady's murder, but it would at least remove some of that federal heat. Littered and Wilde posted a letter requesting that Bonnie come in and speak with him, and he did. Only problem was, Billy was too late. The kid arrived some six weeks after the letter was posted, and in the meantime, Leonard and Wilde had a fallen out, and the deal was no longer on the table. Okay, fine. Time to steal some more horses. In November of 1880, Billy, along with the usual suspects of Folliard, Bowdry, Wilson, Pickett, Rudabaugh, and a few others, all rode on east to Fort Sumner and stole a bunch of ponies belonging to shopkeep Alexander Grezelhofsky, also known as Padre Polacco for obvious reasons. These stolen steeds were then driven to the Great House Ranch outside of White Oaks, followed by the kid and them others headed into town and stocking up on provisions, which they did not pay for. 
By November 22, 1880, a posse under White Oak saloon keeper slash deputy sheriff William Hudgens found Billy and his pals camped at Coyote Springs. The lawmen approached, but the outlaws managed to quickly mount up and scan out. Both the kid and Billy Wilson's horses were shot out from under him during the escape, but they still evaded capture. The outlaws made their way back to the Great House Ranch, only to have that posse out of White Oaks make yet another appearance just a few days later. Deputy Hudgens sent a note inside letting the bandits know that they were surrounded and to come out with their hands up. A request that, according to one eyewitness, prompted Billy and the others to burst out in laughter. The posse was determined, however, and turned their attention to young Billy Wilson, who faced far less serious charges than the kid. Wilson was hesitant, but asked that the posse send in Jimmy Carlisle to discuss the terms of his possible surrender. Now, this part has always confused me a little. I've read that Carlisle was a deputy, and I've read that he was a blacksmith. The deputy leading the posse out of White Oaks, William Hudgens, operated a saloon. I'm assuming that all these men were just citizens of White Oaks and deputized in much the same way that the regulators were when the Lincoln County War first broke out. I could be wrong, but it doesn't appear any of these guys were full-time dedicated law dogs. As for Jimmy Carlisle, by all accounts, he was well-liked, and I guess Billy Wilson felt like he could trust him. And for all you Young Guns fans out there, this is starting to sound familiar, right? In the movie, this little standoff took place in a house of ill repute owned by the sultry and seductive Jane Greathouse. And as much as I loved her appearance, unfortunately, she never existed. In real life, the boys were posted up at the ranch of Jim Greathouse, also known as Whiskey Jim on account of him illegally selling spirits to the indigenous. And when Carlisle agreed to come on inside and negotiate with the holdouts, Whiskey Jim took his place with the posse. It was understood that if anything happened to Carlisle, Jim Greathouse would be the first to pay the piper. So here comes Carlisle stepping inside only to find everybody drinking liberally from Whiskey Jim's liquor supply. Everyone but Billy, of course. He was abstaining as usual, but he did make sure Deputy Carlisle drank his fill and then some. Indeed, Billy forced so much whiskey down Carlisle's gullet that the man was a stumbling drunk in no time flat. Factor in the kid growing more and more intimidating with each drink, and Carlisle quickly became a very nervous, stumbling drunk. By 2 p.m. that afternoon, the posse was tired of waiting and threatened to kill Great House if Carlisle wasn't released in five minutes. As the seconds ticked by, someone in the posse got nervous and accidentally discharged a firearm. As soon as the gun went off, Carlisle came exploding through the front window of Great House's place, getting shot all to hell in the process. According to one witness, bullets were flying from all directions before silence fell and the crowd discovered that the dead man was their friend Carlisle instead of Billy or one of his crew. Realizing their error, the posse soon disappeared and the kid and his compadres were able to slip away once again, only on foot. The posse would return the next day and burn Jim Greathouse's place to the ground. So the big question is who killed deputy slash blacksmith Carlisle? Did his own posse accidentally fill in full of lead, or did Billy or one of his men shoot Carlisle as he attempted to make a drunken escape? The kid would blame the posse, of course, and the posse would blame him. One would-be vigilante, when speaking to a reporter, would even claim to have seen Billy take deliberate aim at Carlisle. Also, according to a newspaper article printed in 1881, both Billy Wilson and Dave Rudabaugh as good as admitted to killing Carlisle implicating Bonnie as a shooter in the process. And remember, Carlisle was very well liked. 
Whether or not the kid pulled the trigger didn't matter. Billy had gotten a good man killed, and even those who once regarded him as just a harmless stock thief now viewed Billy as a cold-blooded murderer. And, of course, his reputation only continued to grow. Less than a week later, Bonnie would finally, officially, be referred to by his most famous and enduring moniker, Billy the Kid. The article in question, printed in the Las Vegas Gazette, named Billy as a desperate cuss and the leader of a small army of 40 or 50 hard cases who were terrorizing Fort Sumner and the Texas Panhandle. And so it spread. Other papers printed the nickname along with Billy's real and imaginary exploits. And before long, even news outlets as far away as New York City were churning out articles on the notorious Billy the Kid, the scourge of the Southwest. Billy responded to this newfound fame by pinning a letter to Governor Wallace writing, quote, There is no such organization in existence and the gentleman who wrote the article was drawn heavily on imagination. Furthermore, the kid also claimed that he had not been living a life of crime, that he'd been earning money as a gambler at Fort Sumner, and that Carlisle was killed by his own posse. Governor Wallace wasn't convinced. Not only would he no longer be entertaining any idea of offering a pardon or clemency, but on December 13th, just a little over a week after the Gazette ran that article, Wallace posted a reward of $500, close to $15,000 in today's money, for the apprehension and delivery to the sheriff of Lincoln County, one Bonnie, alias the Kid. Billy at this point is more hunted than he's ever been, and even his allies start having second thoughts. Keep in mind that the Kid doesn't exactly have a home to call his own. He's moving from place to place, sometimes just abandoned buildings or sheep herder camps, or bunking with friends at the Yerby or Wilcox ranches. And as the pressure mounted, Billy became less and less welcomed in such locales. As far as his old friend Charlie Bowdry was concerned, remember, he was trying to go straight. He and the kid were still pals, but Charlie was attempting to distance himself. He moved his family into Fort Sumner, and while he still worked at the Yarby Ranch, he no longer physically stayed there at night, opted instead to camp out in the hills. Bowdry had even come forward to speak with Pat Garrett to let him know that he was done. Speaking of Garrett... In late November of 1880, while the kid and others were escaping White Oaks on foot, Garrett and Bob Ollinger led a posse of around 50 gunmen to do a sweep from Roswell north to Fort Sumner. Them cowpoke investigators from the Texas Panhandle were still around, looking to neutralize the kid, and they linked up with Garrett's men as well. Not much came of this raid, but nonetheless, the pressure was enough to cause Billy to once again contemplate leaving the territory for good. Maybe even head on down to old Mexico. But alas, he would not. By late December, Garrett was back and headed straight for Fort Sumner. Billy was alerted to his presence and lit out for the safety of the Wilcox Ranch. Or should I say the perceived safety of the Wilcox Ranch. Pat was getting crafty and he knew that many of the locals were weary of the kid and all this heat he'd been bringing. As such, Garrett was able to turn a few of Billy's pards and have them pass on notes to the kid saying that he, Pat, had departed Fort Sumner. The idea was that Billy would return as soon as he thought the coast was clear. And sure enough, Billy fell for it. First, though, let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Hey, welcome back. I know I hate ads, too. Remember, the Wild West Extravaganza is available gloriously free of commercials on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. All right, back to Billy. Late on the night of December 19th, Pat heard approaching horsemen as he and the posse readied themselves in the shadow. 
Just so happened that Tom O'Falliard and Tom Pickett were riding ahead of Billy and the others. As they approached, Pat yelled out for him to halt, and O'Falliard went for his pistol. Two rifles barked, and O'Falliard buckled, his horse trotting about 150 yards away with him slumped in the saddle. Tom wouldn't die immediately, though. As Billy and the others spun their mounts and tore hell for leather in the other direction, O'Falliard was taken inside and laid on a blanket. In his pain, Tom told Garrett that he'd see him in hell, and Pat suggested that maybe a dying man shouldn't use such language, to which O'Falliard replied by calling Garrett a long-legged son of a bitch. O'Falliard asked for water. It was provided. He then laid back, shuddered, and passed across the veil. Now, Pat had also turned Manuel Brazil, part owner of the Wilcox Ranch, or I guess you could accurately call it the Brazil Wilcox Ranch. And now, under the sheriff's influence, Brazil was going back and forth between Garrett and the kid, spreading whatever false information that Pat wanted. As such, Brazil told Billy that Garrett was at Fort Sumner with just one deputy. And once more, the kid fell for the ruse, hook, line, and sinker, immediately wanting to ride back and deal with Garrett once and for all. Charlie Bowdry talked him out of it, though. Instead, they left the Brazil Wilcox spread and headed east a few miles to a old abandoned sheep herder's house near a place called Stinkin' Springs. Of course, Brazil then went scurrying back to Fort Sumner to tell Pat. Soon enough, here he comes with about a dozen or so posse men. Now at the cabin, you had Billy, Dave Rudaball, Charlie Bowdry, Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett. There was enough room for them, their bedrolls, and two horses. The other three ponies were picketed just outside. Garrett and his men could hear the bandits snoring as they approached on foot coming at the house from two different sides. At first, Pat intended just to go right on in there in the dead of the night, but one of his men convinced him it was best to hold off until sunrise. And that's just what they did, hunkered down in the cold waiting for first light. I reckon patience truly is a virtue because right at the ass crack of dawn, somebody emerged from the building wearing a wide-brimmed sombrero of the type that Billy favored and carrying a sack of grain for the horses. Not one his quarry. To escape once more, Pat gave the silent order and several rifles barked as the target fell backwards. It wasn't Billy, though. It was Charlie Bowdry, the man who just wanted to go straight but couldn't seem to get shut of Billy the damn kid. Screams were immediately heard from within, with Billy Wilson yelling out to Garrett that he killed Bowdry, followed by Wilson saying that Bowdry wanted to surrender, which Pat agreed to provided that he came out with his hands up. What occurred next is up for debate. Surprise, surprise, right? According to Pat Garrett in The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, Bonnie held Charlie up, told him that it wasn't too late to get revenge, and then shoved him out to meet the posse. I guess the idea that Bowdry would go down in a blaze of glory and maybe take Pat with him in the process. Or at very least serve as a distraction, allowing the kid and the others to escape. Just like back in Lincoln. As it turned out, Bowdry just staggered towards Garrett, struggling to get out his final words. I wish, I wish, I wish. And with that, Charlie collapsed. I took hold of him, Garrett later said, laid him down gently on my blanket, and he died almost immediately. For what it's worth, Pat's men all remembered slightly different versions. Louis Bozeman claimed that it was he, not Garrett, who laid Bowdry on the blanket while Charlie East says that Bowdry had his revolver in hand, attempted to put up one last fight, but was too weak to thumb back the hammer. Yet another Garrett posse member, Charles Rudolph, said that Bowdry's gun remained in the holster the entire time. Either way, Bowdry was a dead man, 
His plans of settling down, living an honest life, and raising a family forever dashed that cold winter day at Stinking Springs. The kid and the gang attempted to pull the other horses inside with them, but Garrett shot one and then possibly shot the ropes of the other two, letting them run off. Billy then invited Pat inside for a cup of coffee, and Garrett in turn invited the kid to surrender. Bonnie replied with a resolute go to hell as he and the others began digging at the back wall, either attempted to make a hole to run out of or clear some fire imports. An endeavor soon stopped by a few well-placed rifle rounds from the posse. Thinking he was in for a long siege, Pat had a wagon of supplies brought in, bacon and such. Weren't long before the smell of frying fat back drifted on down to the stone house and a white flag went up. Then boys holed up inside that little house were hungry as hell and besides, they knew there wasn't no way out. Not with that dead horse blocking the door. The kid said as much remarking that Garrett would have just starved him out and besides, I thought it was better to come out and get a good square meal. Rudaball emerged first, then Wilson, Pickett, and finally the kid. At least one member of the posse, Barney Mason, advocated killing the kid right there on the spot, on account of him being such a sneaky snake, but others backed him down. Oddly enough, both the kid and Rudaball were in fine spirits that night, both of them little chatterboxes while Pickett seemed frightened and young Billy Wilson silent and visibly ashamed. The prisoners arrived at Fort Sumner on Christmas Eve and were paid a visit by Delvinia Maxwell, a Navajo and former captive of the Ute who was ransomed by Lucian Maxwell years before. She came asking permission for Billy to visit his lady friend Paulita one last time and say his goodbyes. Garrett agreed, but the kid was shackled to Rudaball and Pat refused to untether him. Thusly, the kid bid his sweetheart adieu right there in front of everybody. According to posse member Charlie East, the lovers embraced and she gave Billy one of those soul kisses that the novelists tell us about, till it be in time to hit the trail for Vegas. We had to pull them apart much against our wishes, for you know all the world loves a lover. Now, while that's a very touching story, one can't forget that Charlie Bowdry's body lay stiffening nearby and his new widow, Manuela, wasn't quite as cheerful as everybody else. She attacked Garrett, kicking wildly and had to be pulled away before smacking East across the head with a branding iron. Charlie Bowdry was 32 years old and buried right there at Fort Sumner, next to the still-fresh grave of Tom O'Folliard. Billy and the other prisoners were then taken over 100 miles northwest to Las Vegas, where Bonnie's high spirits continued. He was a mini-celebrity after all, and folks flocked to see him. He was even interviewed while in jail. The reporter commented that Billy appeared to take it easy, to which Billy replied, Yep, what's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything? The laugh's on me this time. Hey, is the jail in Santa Fe any better than this? This is a terrible place to put a fellow in. Of the kid's attitude, the reporter wrote that Bonnie was light and chipper and very communicative, laughing and joking and chatting with bystanders. I should point out that Rudabaugh had killed a jail guard right there in Las Vegas about eight months prior in a botched attempt to bust his buddy J.J. Webb out of jail. While Billy may have received a warm welcome, Dave did not. Consequently, Garrett and his men had to hold off a lynch mob that night and again the next day as they and their prisoners boarded the train for Santa Fe. Things got so tense that Pat even threatened to free both Rudaball and the kid and arm him. Billy, of course, took the whole thing with a great sense of humor, bragging that if he had a Winchester, he could lick the whole crowd. Once again, the local newspaper chimed in, remarking that the prospect of a fight seemed to exhilarate the kid. Tensions finally eased enough for the train to depart, 
and they reached Santa Fe that evening without incident. And of course, Pat Garrett was denied the $500 reward. Governor Lou Wallace had recently departed for back east. Guess he uh, needed to see about selling that book of his. And the acting governor figured that since he didn't offer up the reward, he didn't have to pay it. Imagine that. A politician looking to bamboozle somebody out of their own damn money. For what it's worth, several grateful citizens did take up a donation for the sheriff, seeing to it that he at least got a little something. As for Billy, his laid-back facade wouldn't last. The longer he sat there in jail in Santa Fe, the more it began to crack. He began repeatedly writing to Governor Lou Wallace, reminding him of their agreement, but received no replies. By the end of February 1881, the kid is caught attempting to tunnel out of jail, and a month later still, Billy writes one last letter to the governor, pleading. And once again, there's no reply. The only hint that Wallace possibly felt a twinge of guilt was his appointment of former Judge Ira Leonard as the kid's legal counsel. March 28th, the kid is put on a train bound for Messiah to stand trial for the killing of Buckshot Roberts. And this was just one of many trials that Billy faced. The kid had both federal and territorial charges, and the prosecutors were just going to take them one at a time until they got the inevitable conviction. The first case was dismissed on a technicality, but Billy's luck would not hold out. Just two days after the next trial began, he would be found guilty of Sheriff Brady's murder. On April 13, 1881, at approximately 5.15 in the afternoon, Judge Warren Bristle formally sentenced Billy to death by hanging. His execution date was set for exactly a month later, May 13th, and to be carried out between the hours of 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. In the meantime, Bonnie was to be turned over to Pat Garrett and confined in Lincoln. And no, there's no record of Billy telling the judge to go to hell, hell, hell. When asked if he had anything to say during the sentencing, court records show Billy said, quote, nothing. Later, however, when pressed by a reporter, the kid once again brought up Lou Wallace's broken promise, stating that the last time he was arrested, the governor let him have the freedom of town and that he found it hard to believe that he should be the only one to suffer the extreme penalty of the law. Wallace responded publicly by saying that, I can't see how a fellow like him should expect any clemency from me. Now, I hate to be that guy, but in all fairness, as recently as October of 1880, Wallace was pressing Ira Leonard to do something for the kid, whatever that means. In the meantime, Billy continued his life of crime. Once Carlisle was killed and Billy was thrust into the limelight, there really wasn't much a politician like Wallace could do without tarnishing his own career. Then there's also the fact that when the kid was writing Wallace repeatedly back in Santa Fe, he even threatened a little bit of blackmail, hoping to get the governor's attention. Truth is, the kid screwed himself. I get the frustration, though. Wallace did initially promise the kid a pardon. He should have made good on that. And out of everybody who participated in the Lincoln County War, only Billy was ever held accountable. There were people in Lincoln County far worse than the kid, but he would be the only one to pay the ultimate price. Hell, three of the men tasked with guarding Billy on his way to Lincoln were Billy Matthews, a longtime enemy and Dolan man, John Kinney, who was more of a ranked criminal than Bonnie ever dreamed of being, and finally Robert Pecos Bob Ollinger, another Dolan man through and through and, according to whispers, a damn backshooting murderer. Billy and his escorts had a layover at Blazer's Mill on April 20th, where the kid did a pantomime reenactment of the famous fight, and then they arrived at Fort Stanton the next day and from there on to Lincoln. Not trusting that Billy wouldn't be able to escape from the rickety Lincoln County jailhouse, 
Garrett instead had him put in the second-story room right next to the sheriff's office in what was once the old Murphy Dolan store. The kid's guards were the aforementioned Bob Ollinger and another deputy by the name of James Bell. Now, Billy got along with Bell just fine, but he and Ollinger just flat-out hated each other. A known bully, Ollinger repeatedly provoked the kid during his incarceration to the point that even Garrett allegedly asked the deputy to lay off. By this point, Billy knew that his only hope lay in busting out of jail. There would be no retrial, and there would be no pardon. It was either escape or hang, and, well, I guess the kid never did like heights. As fate would have it, Billy got his chance on April 28th when Pat was out of town on official duty, possibly to secure the lumber for the kid's gallows. At around 6 p.m., Ollinger escorted five prisoners across the street to the Wortley Hotel for supper, leaving the kid alone with Bell. Not long after, Billy told the deputy that he needed to use the outhouse. Bell was hesitant, but relented and escorted the kid outside to the shitter. Upon their return, Bonnie was walking ahead of Bell, arms and legs shackled, as he began climbing up the flight of stairs. Moments later, Deputy Bell lay on the ground, shot dead by Billy the Kid. Say it with me, class. What exactly happened is up for debate. That's right and you better believe there are more than a few theories. The most popular story goes that Billy obtained a revolver from the privy, left there by one of his pards. He concealed it on his person until he reached the top of the stairs, and then, after slipping out of his cuffs, quickly turned and shot Bell. In the kid's own words, I did not want to kill Bell, but I had to do so in order to save my own life. It was a case of having to, not wanting to. Now, the story about Billy getting the pistol from the outhouse... I believe originates from a guy named Bonifacio Baca and was first recorded in the July 1936 edition of Frontier Times titled Facts Regarding the Escape of Billy the Kid. Baca was the brother-in-law of the late Sam Corbett who just so happens to be the friend credited with placing the pistol in the outhouse. Others disagree. Pat Garrett's theory was that the kid broke away from Bell, ran up the stairs, and forced his way into the armory. He quickly grabbed a pistol, returned to the top of the stairs, and then he gunned the deputy down. Robert Udley, one of, if not the foremost Billy the Kid expert, believes that the most logical explanation is the kid got free of his shackles, as he was known to do with his small hands, and once he reached the top of the stairs, he swung his arms out at Bell, striking him in the head with the heavy chains. Bell hit the ground, and Billy pounced. There was a fight, and the kid was able to get Bell's pistol from his holster. Getting to his feet, Bell attempted to run up the stairs, but the kid squeezed the trigger, and that was the end of Deputy James Bell. This idea is backed up by uh, reports that Bell had two gashes on his head, and allegedly this is the version that Billy admitted to his friend John Meadows. This theory is discredited, however, if a judge Lucius Deals is to be believed. He supposedly proved several years after the fact that Bell's pistol never left the holster and that it was still fully loaded when the deputy's body was discovered. And there's yet another version where Bell and the kid were just playing cards when Billy hit him over the head with the handcuffs and grabbed his pistol and shot him. Nobody knows for sure what happened. We don't know that there was even a pistol in the outhouse and we don't know whose gun Billy used. All we know for a fact is that Bell ended up dead. Billy then made his way upstairs to Garrett's office, picked up Bob Ollinger's double-barrel 10-gauge shotgun, and went to the window, just in time for Bob to come a-running. Story goes that someone yelled out that the kid killed Bell just as Bob was looking up and saw Billy and the 
business end of that scattergun, allegedly prompting the bully lawman to say, Yes, and he's killed me too. Billy then gave Ollinger both barrels, catching him in the face and chest with at least 36 balls of what I assume was double-op buck. As far as the rumors that Ollinger had his shotgun loaded with dimes, I'm pretty sure that's just an urban legend. I'm no expert, but I believe the consensus is that you'd have to be pretty damn close for a load of dimes to be effective. All you shotgun aficionados out there, please don't hesitate to email me and let me know what you think. How close would Billy have had to have been to Bob Ollinger to kill him with a load of dimes? After Ollinger was sent to his final reward, Billy had somebody fetch a pickaxe, which he used to sever his leg chains and then stepped out onto the street where, quote, the balance of the population, whether friends or enemies of the kid, manifested no disposition to molest him, end quote. By at least one account, the kid remained in town for over an hour. He collected a veritable arsenal of weaponry, and mounted a horse owned by the court clerk, and was almost instantly thrown from said horse when it bucked in protest. Billy then remounted, whether cursing or laughing, I don't know, and trotted on out of Lincoln, promising to return the pony. Some say he was singing a song as he rode away. And if you don't mind, let's just get this last ad break out of the way before finishing the story. Well, all right, welcome back. Now, this escape would absolutely make the kid's reputation. Stories now began popping up that he was responsible for killing upwards of 20 people. The newspapers called him a daredevil desperado, the disgrace of New Mexico, a flagrant violator of every law, and a young demon, while at the same time others held him as a hero, the savior of the oppressed and the champion of the underdog. As for Governor Lou Wallace, well, he placed yet another $500 on the kid's head. By the way, that horse from Lincoln was returned, as promised, but I'm not sure it was on purpose. Supposedly, the pony just pulled its own reins loose from a damn sodal stock and headed home on its own accord, forcing the kid to borrow another mount. Story goes that the new horse got spooked about 20 or so miles south of Fort Sumner, ensuring that the kid finished his journey on foot. And upon arriving at Fort Sumner, the kid immediately stole yet another horse and skinned out bareback. A posse was formed and caught up with Billy about 15 miles down the trail at a sheep camp. The posse leader was Barney Mason, the same dude who wanted to kill Bonnie back when he surrendered over his stinking springs. Old Barney lost his starch, however, upon noticing that the kid was ready to put up a fight. Another posse member approached cautiously and spoke to Billy, who told him to tell the horse's owner not to worry. He would either return the horse or send a payment. And with that, the posse let him be. And believe it or not, instead of immediately leaving the territory, Billy just went back to the same life he was living before his capture, just roaming from one lonely camp to another, all in the vicinity of Fort Sumner. And sometimes he even slipped into the fort to see friends or spend time with the senoritas. Hell, it weren't no secret even the papers were reporting on the kid's location. It was only a matter of time before Sheriff Garrett came calling once more. Sure enough, by July 10th, 1881, Garrett and a very small posse departed Roswell, bound for Fort Sumner. Along with Pat, you had deputies Thomas Kip McKinney and John Poe, a former buffalo hunter turned stock detective. The party arrived on the outskirts of the old fort on the night of the 13th, and Garrett sent Poe in alone, thinking maybe being an outsider he could fish for a little bit of information. No dice. Everybody inside the fort remained pretty tight-lipped, almost nervous-like so nervous that the posse concluded that Billy had to be very close at hand. 
That being the case, Pat decided that they'd sneak inside that night and employ a tactic that's still used to this day by police and private investigators. They'd stake out Billy's girlfriend's place and, if possible, speak with Paulita's brother, Pete. Maybe he knew where the kid was. Now remember, Fort Sumner was once upon a time a real fort. Garrett and his two deputies crept in under the cover of darkness and positioned themselves among the peach trees to the north, with the old barracks building to their front and left and the Maxwell dwelling to their front and right. As they waited in the dark, voices speaking in Spanish suddenly shattered the silence. Crouching down, the deputies watched as a shadowy figure rose from the ground, quote, in his shirt sleeves, wearing a wide-brimmed hat, a dark vest, and pants. The mystery man spoke again, then jumped a nearby fence and walked into the compound. They would later learn that this was the kid, but at the time, Garrett didn't recognize him. Or at least he claimed not to recognize him. As always, theories abound. Some think Billy went in to see Paulita. Others think maybe Celsa Gutierrez or any number of his friends. Apparently, at some point, Billy got hungry. He removed his hat, vest, and boots, and made his way over to Maxwell's with a butcher knife in one hand and his pistol in the other, cutting off a slab of meat from a fresh yearling. Meanwhile, Garrett, Poe, and McKinney had snuck their way around and also approached the Maxwell house. Garrett entered alone, hoping to speak with Pete as he left the other two deputies on the porch. Seconds later, Poe and McKinney both saw the kid, bareheaded and wearing socks, and looking as if he was fastening his pants. Likewise, Billy saw them and immediately raised his revolver. Ken S. Backing away quickly into a darkened doorway, the kid repeated this question twice more in earnest. Ken S. Ken S. Who is it? Who is it? John Poe then stands up and approaches Billy in an attempt to appear non-threatening, trying not to scare him, but the kid disappears into the shadows of the building, the same building that Pat Garrett's in. Meanwhile, Pat had woken P. Maxwell up and was asking him about Billy's whereabouts. That's when they heard the kid backing into the room. Pete, who them fellers outside? Maxwell recognizes the kid's voice and sits up straight in the bed and declares, That's him! At almost the exact moment, Billy sees Pat standing next to the bed. Remember, it's dark, so all the kid can make out is a large shadow. Nevertheless, he lifts up his pistol and once again lets out a startled, Kines. According to Garrett, Billy then, quote, Went backward with a cat-like movement and I jerked my gun and I fired. The flash from the first shot temporarily blinded the sheriff, but he thumbed back the hammer and quickly fired a second time. Cocking the revolver for a third shot, Garrett heard a groan and held off. During all the chaos, Pete Maxwell jumped up and ran out of the room, almost getting shot by Poe and McKinney in the process. Pat follows Pete outside and tells his deputies that he thinks he just shot the kid, to which John Poe oddly remarks, Pat, the kid would not have come to this place. You have shot the wrong man. This was around midnight, but folks were starting to gather. Pete Maxwell returned with a candle, holding it to the window where, according to Coe, we saw a man lying stretched upon his back dead, in the middle of the room, with a six-shooter laying at his right hand and a butcher knife at his left. Garrett and his deputies entered and, upon further inspection, verified that, yeah, Pat had indeed killed the infamous Billy the Kid. One of Garrett's two bullets had found its mark, entering Bonnie's left side of the chest just above the heart. Celsa Gutierrez ran at Pat tearfully, slamming her fist against his chest as Paulita and Delvinia Maxwell and a few other women stood nearby, crying softly. 
armed and angry men began congregating, cursing Garrett and his deputies. All night, the sheriff and his men stood guard, expecting an attack that never came. Finally, at daybreak, a coroner's jury was assembled. The five men entered into Maxwell's room, where the kids still lay, and they heard from both Pat and Pete. A report was written and signed that stated that the jury concluded that William Bonney had been killed from a bullet wound near his heart, inflicted by one Pat F. Garrett. They then added that the killing was justifiable homicide and, we are of the opinion that the gratitude of the whole community is owed to said Garrett for his deed and that he deserves to be rewarded. The kid's body was then taken outside and laid on a workbench at the old carpenter shop. The women placed candles around him and performed sort of a wake as they cleaned and dressed his body and combed his hair. That afternoon, Billy was placed in a coffin, taken to the cemetery, and buried next to his old friends Tom O'Folliard and Charlie Bowdry. The news spread. Papers as far away as London ran stories telling of the kid's life and death. Then came the dime novels and Pat Garrett's own book telling his version of Billy's life. Then Walter Noble Burns and the saga of Billy the Kid, and here we are today. Over 140 years later, still mesmerized by the kid and still telling his story. Now, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that the previous description of events is the official version, and not everybody believes that events unfolded exactly as Pat Garrett claimed. Some question whether or not the kid was really toting that pistol and butcher knife, thinking maybe Pat shot Billy while he was unarmed. Others find it strange that the kid was buried so quickly that he wasn't put on display or photographed. Even the coroner's jury is questioned by some, with the report especially sounding like it was dictated by Garrett himself. Certainly there are problems with Garrett's official account. I won't deny that. But at the end of the day, it's all speculation. While there are some tantalizing theories, taken in context with the entire story and in view of the evidence, they don't hold much water. There was no fake death. Garrett didn't let his old friend from Fort Sumner slip away. The kid was dead. It was finished. And in his place, a legend was born. Somebody asked me a while back if I considered Billy to be ordinary. The question gave me pause. After all, the kid wasn't nearly as prolific as other noted bandits like Jesse James or Butch Cassidy. He never robbed a train or held up a bank or anything like that. The kid's main crime was stealing from rich folks and not getting the hell gone while he still had a chance. But no, I don't think Billy's ordinary. I think he was an extraordinary young man, and I think the main draw with Billy is that we see a bit of ourselves in him. Or I guess I should say we see things that we wish we could replicate in Billy. We never got to see Billy the Kid the man, encumbered with the stress of family and obligations and hindered by old age. In a sense, I think the kid represents sort of an Old West never-never land. A carefree frontier oasis where the horses are fast, the senoritas are lively, the music never stops, and where friendship, your pals, means everything. That's the legend of Billy the Kid. And I don't think any of us want to see that legend die at Fort Sumner in the middle of the night at the hands of Pat Garrett. And I think that's about all I've got on Billy the Kid. I leaned heavily on several sources for this series, most notably Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life by Robert Utley, and Billy the Kid, The Endless Ride by Michael Wallace. And of course, the always informative True West magazine. Thank you so much for listening. Really means the world to me. 
If you like what you hear, send me an email. Let me know what you think. Josh at wildwestextra.com and head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com and check out some more true tales from the wild and woolly west. All right, till next time, here's to Billy and here's to never getting old. Deal with some more horses. <laughs>